for the past six weeks, the church has been enjoying the wonder of sins forgiven. We've been basking in the glory of the resurrection, recalling the Lord Jesus as he triumphed over death. He overcame the bonds. And we've been thinking about how for 40 days, the risen Lord was with his disciples and he taught them the meaning of life. His life, his death, his resurrection. We read just this morning how he opened their minds to understand what it is he had done and what it is he's doing. They couldn't have just figured that out. They couldn't have just put the pieces together. God has to reveal himself to us. He's not like us. We wouldn't imagine, when we imagine him, you end up with Greek gods and Roman gods who are petty and passionate like we are. He gave them comprehension of what would become the New Testament as they then set out this teaching in writing. So he gave them his word. And at the end of those 40 days, he led them out to the Mount of Olives. This is that mountain that's east of Jerusalem. The Kidron Valley runs between the Mount, Mount Zion and the Mount of Olives. The temple's on Mount Zion, and there's an olive grove on the Mount of Olives. Luke 24 says he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them. And he was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. This is what Christians call the ascension. Those are the bare facts. He was with them, he was talking, he was blessing, and he started to go up. And then he was not visible to them anymore. And the angel said, why do you look on? He'll come back the same way. This is one of the principal events in the history of the world. It's one of the principal feasts of the church, festivals, since the earliest days. It doesn't get a lot of play, and, right? It doesn't get a lot of attention in Protestant churches. I don't know today how many churches across the Treasure Valley are talking about the Ascension on Thursday. It was probably a handful of churches that even acknowledged that, that was the day of the Ascension. But for the apostles, for the early church, the fact of the risen Christ ascending to his throne is as crucial as the incarnation. It's as crucial a thing as the resurrection. In fact, it's part of the resurrection. They're not separate in apostolic teaching. So according to Scripture, the Spirit almost immediately gave them understanding of what had happened, of this event. On Pentecost, 10 days later, we're looking towards Pentecost next weekend, 10 days after the ascension, Peter explains the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, explains Pentecost in connection with Christ's ascension. The fact of the church, the existence of the church is connected with the ascension, inseparably connected. Acts 2.29, the patriarch David 
This is Peter speaking. The patriarch David foresaw, and he spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. He didn't decay. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we're all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Because He is exalted at the right hand of God. Because He has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing, hearing, experiencing. For it wasn't David that ascended to the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord, he's quoting David, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is a shock. Peter's giving them a shock. The promised one, the Messiah, that they had been waiting for and they'd been hoping would establish the Jewish people and establish their peace and kingdom forever. He came. And they killed him. So everything that they had understood about what the Messiah would be wasn't coming about. It wasn't as they expected. But Peter wants them to understand that their notion of Messiah, their notion of king, too small, too provincial, way too local. Christ wasn't just going to rule over David's descendants. David's throne, but not just David's descendants. He wasn't just going to throw off Roman rule. That's what they wanted. Just get rid of these Italians and establish a Jewish kingdom. Not just the Jewish kingdom. He was going to overthrow the powers of darkness. He was going to overthrow the grasp of evil. He was going to break the chains of death. And Christ was coming to rule over all the nations forever. And now he is, Peter declared. There's the change. Jesus Christ that you thought you got rid of. Jesus Christ that you thought you killed is now Lord over all. God raised him up, gave him fullness of power. This Lord in Christ, he's living, he's active, he's exercising his power for his people. And how do you know that? This spirit that he's poured out. This is evidence of his active rule right now. So that that fact that Christ Jesus is alive and he's actively ruling, that he's actively involved in the world, was the linchpin for the apostles as they kept talking about him. And here, because it's so long ago, we can get confused about this. They not only talked about what he had done on the cross. They did. Of course, they talked about the forgiveness of sins. They talked about the cross but they equally stressed 
what he was actively doing in the world. Paul's prayer for the Ephesians helps us understand this reality and the revolutionary quality. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you in that present moment, and we should apply it to us, that the Lord may give to us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. That He would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. That you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in His people, in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. So that same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority. Far above all power and dominion. Above every name that's named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things for the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. He's communicating something for us. Something that's unchanging. God wants people to receive this remarkable truth that has occurred in the ascension. Not only did God come among us, He took on human nature. He perfected mankind. But in His ascension, He's inaugurated a new order. There, when He ascended, something new happened. A new age, a new order. Jesus didn't just go up into the clouds and disappear. He didn't just go up so that we can now think fondly on what he did. Be, be comforted by what he did. Christianity isn't just about what happened on the cross. When Jesus entered the glorious realms, the perfect, risen, exalted representative of God to man, and now representative of man in the heavenlies, Son of God, Son of Man, He ascended a throne. The throne. He didn't just go up. He sat down to rule. And He's seated on the throne. And He received back all honors due to Him. King of kings, Lord of lords, above every name for all time. He had set those aside when He came to earth. He set aside the majesty. When he took on human flesh, he set aside the glory. He set aside the honors. He set aside the praise, continuous. But when he sat down, he received them back. And he received them in a new way. There's something new because he had brought perfect human nature into God. That's strange to think about. He brought human nature into divinity. He connected them. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Not only by right, 
Not only in theory, but in a new reality. And he has bound the created order. Human beings. He's bound the created with the uncreated. This is hard to grasp. In himself, Christ Jesus links together the heavenly space with the earthly space. So that, that we talked about with the kids. That place where God is, the heavenly space, is linked with the space where we are. Those were two realms hitherto divided. In Christ, they're linked. The place of life and the place of death. They now have a bridge, and that bridge is Jesus. Part of this new reality... He inaugurated there when he rose. Part of this is that entering and participating in the kingdom of Christ begins here. It begins in the perishing order. That's a weird thing, right? That eternal life, our participation in everlasting reality, it begins in what is perishing. And so we have this short allotted period where the people of Christ work out our salvation. We work out who we are. We begin to grasp and measure and measure. It begins to sink in bit by bit. Here within the tricky places that are dying. And so for as long as the dying parts of us continue, we're all dying. Even you, young ones, you're dying. As long as the dying parts of us will continue, we will get to stay in the dying lands. Our participation in the heavenly realities is within this order. How are we to do that? How are we to do that? How are we to be a different kind of human than the rest of those that we share the dying lands with? How do we live according to what is real and true rather than according to this enchantment that Satan has thrown over what's perishing? Now here we turn to Colossians 3. And this is as much an ascension text as any in the Scriptures. So Colossians 3, 1-4, if you have Scripture, please look. Verse 3 states the change. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When we place our faith in Jesus, that is, when we identify with him as our sacrifice, we trust him for it. He gives us his spirit. So that whatever he suffered is our suffering. His death becomes our death. Having his spirit in us, his life becomes our life. It's a wondrous thing. His suffering is our suffering. His life is our life. So now it can be said, and this is the gospel, you have died. 
There is a second death does not await you. We'll all lose our flesh. But he died for us. And so now, your life is hidden with Christ. In God. So what's the anchor of your soul? What allows your soul to continue to exist? Where does... Where does the life of your soul come from right now? As you're sitting there and I'm standing here, where does our soul exist? How does it continue? Our life is anchored in Christ. It's not a perishing soul. Without the Spirit of God in us, the soul is perishing. Ours is a soul alive. Your life is held there. Your life is kept there. Now to verse 1. If then you've been raised with Christ, this reality, then seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Notice how these are statements of reality. They're about anchoring what you think and do in what's real and true. There are commands, there's wisdom that flows out of what's real and true. This is a call for those who have become part of what is everlasting. So who you are is linked with the risen Christ on the throne. That's reality. It's not something that's going to happen someday. And I think that's easy for us to do. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I will be with Christ someday. I will be linked with him. This is reality now. It's the situation now. And so we are to seek those things that are part of what's lasting. That's part of what we're part of. Verse 2 elaborates. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. This can often be misread as, um, oh, so, so we should kind of embrace a Gnostic division of reality. We should only think about spirit that's what matters, and we should do whatever with what's here. Reformation-era translations give a slightly different reading of this. I'm talking the Bishop's Bible, Geneva Bible, King James Bible, John Wycliffe. They read, set your affections on things above. Set your affections affections on things above. And that word above is a directional adverb meaning <laughs> aboveward. Set your affections aboveward. That wayward. It's directional. Let your affections allow your attentions to take their cues from, to be directed by the place where Christ is. So to set your affections or to, to set your mind is to have your heart and what you value taking shape from, from that source. It's very clear from this. It's also very clear from our experience that although our life is hidden with Christ and God, you've placed your faith in Christ, 
your life is, is with him on the throne, we are very much able to set our heart. We're very much able to set our affections so that they're shaped by things here, things on earth. That is, things not lasting. We are able to do that. Our life is secure with Christ. But we are able to give ourselves to what's perishing. A big part of our nature has been shaped by us being here, right? It's shaped by what's earthly. And so what happens is our minds are dual citizens. You've probably felt this. I, I, I'm kind of a dual citizen. Your mind it, it can orient you, can orient your story as a friend of Jesus. You can be oriented as an adopted child of the Father. You've begun to experience his love. You've begun to experience a joyful journey that goes on stage to stage. Or your mind can keep you fixated trying to fix what's broken in you, trying to fix what's wrong with the world, especially what's wrong with these people around you. No rest. No rest. We can set our minds on striving. It all hinges on you. And there's not enough of you to go around, but you're going to try. You are going to fix yourself, and you are going to fix your spouse. You are going to fix your kids. You're going to fix your neighbors, those annoying coworkers. You can set your affections on what's perishing. But if you're setting your mind on where Christ is, and you're being shaped by where Christ is, what's that characterized by? If the one is characterized by striving to, to fix what's slipping through your fingers, what's the other? Well, there are lots of ways to answer that question. That would probably be a good sermon series. But let me give two that stand in direct contrast to what the New Testament calls the world, the earth, what's perishing. A life, a mind set on where Christ is, is characterized by rest and humility. And that is in direct contrast to what's perishing. Rest and humility. So because our life is hidden with the ascended Christ, we don't have to live according to the curse. And the curse is trying to make ourselves significant by our doing. We don't have to prove ourselves or prove our worth. We don't have to prove ourselves to ourselves. We don't have to prove ourselves to other people. We can rest. We can rest because our worth is connected with the worth of the king. Is Jesus valuable? Is Jesus worthy? Your life is hidden with Christ and God. Your life is hidden with the worthy one. Your life is worthy. Your life is significant. You can't become more worthy. Whoa! You can't become more worthy 
Whatever you do, all the striving, all the effort, your mission work, you bringing people to Jesus, you building hospitals, doesn't make you more worthy. You can't become more worthy than being in Jesus. That should give us rest. You, you are, you always will be of ultimate value. Always. So you can rest. Just stop it. You can rest. And when we set our affections on Christ, we are being shaped by humility himself. He is humility. Satan's move was pride, self-exaltation, self-interest, getting attention, getting his rights. And that attitude has colored the fallen order. That colors what we move in and out of every day. To look out for your own interests, to be defensive, to take offense, that, that irritation that's just always ready to bubble up. When you are not properly appreciated, that's from pride. And pride is the nature of fallen human beings. That comes from the parts of us that we're shedding, the parts of us that are dying. The fallen order, it's always clutching. It's always grasping for, for what's slipping away, grasping at what can't last. If we set our minds on those things, we know it can't last. And the enemy is saying all the time, this can't last, you've got to get it now. There's always haste, the enemy's voice. It can't last, and so there's competing over what's limited. By contrast, when we set our affections on what's lasting, what's enduring, and we live from our security in Christ, from our worthiness in Him, then God's character wells up in us. His character. Nothing is more remarkable about his character than this unfeigned humility. Astonishing humility. Jesus is the all-powerful one. And he humbled himself to be shamed, to be crushed, to allow himself to have sinful hands laid on him, evil hands, having all goodness, having all power and authority, he voluntarily yielded to destruction for the sake of his destroyers, for the sake of his enemies. He washed his betrayers. He washed their feet, but he washed them by his blood. He washed his betrayers, us, us betrayers. He washed us. He gives meaning to the word humility. And this is the same Jesus who's seated on the throne. That character. That is who is seated on the throne. And so we find that a mind set aboveward a mind with this directional orientation, 
brings about change in this life. Change happens in us as we set our affections there because it yields, it produces a heart at rest and it produces a humble spirit. Because we are not being, we're refusing to be shaped by the striving, by the competition, by the grasping after what is perishing. And so this is the reality that Christ has opened up for us by his ascension. That's where we started, remember? Here's the facts. This is what he's done. He is now offering and he's enabling hearts at rest. We can have that. Hearts at rest. Even as we're making our way through this temporary perishing phase, and that rest, that rest, there's a, there's a paradox about this. Having this rest allows us to see and enjoy the parts of this perishing phase that reflect what is forever. The parts of this realm that are going to last. Because there are parts of this time that are going to endure forever. When we're at rest, we're able to see it. We're able to enjoy the things that are going to remain when everything is shaken. And so we can have God's outlook. We can see people. We can see relationships. We can see stewardship of his stuff in its everlasting quality. Our fields, our forests, they're, they're dying. But there's an everlasting quality about them in our care for them because they're gods. The money that he gives you, that's, that's empty, it's dead. But there's an everlasting quality about your use of money. Strange. We can have rest in that. And we can humbly care for what belongs to the Lord our God. And that's everything. Lord, these are mysteries, and we, we are grateful for whatever you will give to us, whatever understanding. We thank you for giving us a place in the everlasting realm, and that we can be participating in it right now. We can enjoy the rest and the humility and the pleasure of this everlasting realm. So help us. In the space of time you've given each one of us to navigate this order, help us to enjoy it as we enjoy you.